Hello, welcome to The Making of Me, a monologue show where music creators discuss their work and an event that contributed to who they are today. My name is Lisa Canny. I am from County Mayo on the west coast of Ireland and I am an artist living and working here in London. I grew up playing Irish traditional music. I play harp and banjo. Um, started the banjo when I was five and the harp when I was ten and just immersed myself in the Irish traditional music scene and um, had the dream of kind of touring that that music, you know, um, once I hit 18, 19 and um, luckily enough did end up on, on tour in the States when I was 19 with a show um, called uh, Celtic Crossroads not too dissimilar from like Riverdance and all that and did that for six years and then kind of realised I was growing in, growing in different directions a little bit and I was writing my own music and it wasn't quite as traditionally Irish as, as my community was around me and um, I started to kind of um, draw inspiration from the pop and hip-hop and R&B that I loved to listen to growing up. The Irish traditional music scene is a very social thing. It's a very cultural thing. It has, you know, a lot of etiquette to it. Um, you're expected to kind of play a certain way, do act a certain way. It's not, it's not about the individual. It's much more about the group dynamic. It's much more about the music, which is beautiful. And it taught me some really, you know, important life lessons um, so culturally it's it's a it's it's like quite like our own our own culture as, as Irish people I suppose it's family orientated it's community orientated we grew up playing in groups together and playing in pubs together and, and playing tunes together um, and uh, in that respect me kind of going off and doing my own thing and and I suppose in one way kind of like trying to shine in a different way wasn't um, wasn't accepted by everybody. Now it's changing, much like all of the old traditions in any culture. It's changing to kind of allow people to be more kind of um, individual. Creatively, I don't think it, it helped me, but it, it has done anything but benefit me because um, you're taught by ear, you're taught quick and fast, and you are taught to kind of improvise as your the thing that kind of makes you you as a musician in the Irish culture is how you take a tune and what you do with it um, with the ornamentation and the chords and the, the way you present it basically you're encouraged to kind of put your own thing into it and that's what differentiates you from the next player in that respect it's always taught me to just you know go for it put my heart and soul into it and that's how I make it mine and and it's also taught me to have a very good and, and very quick ear I learned harp and banjo by ear but I learned piano as I was growing up too and that was all through notation I didn't quite enjoy it as much at the time but I got it into my head for some reason as a child and my mother tells me this that I had to have my grades on the piano done if I ever wanted to teach music now I've since realised that that's absolute nonsense <laughs> so I don't know where my six-year-old self was getting this idea but now 
having done, you know, I did uh, music as my degree and I did a master's in ethnomusicology and now I lecture part-time in music too. And one of my one of my classes that I lecture is music theory. And I can now see the huge benefit that it's had for me um, when I'm when I'm writing, when I'm composing, when I'm even just putting charts together for the band for quick rehearsals and effective rehearsals. So I am now both and a huge advocate of having both. I do think there is even more benefit in learning by ear first and then applying theory than vice versa. London was the best move for me to kind of reimagine myself and be as um, not just anonymous but kind of be free to be whoever I was without any of the like constraints that were my past and my community and all that. I rap so it, it's like I think it's I'm playing off people's perception and their 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 connotation with with the harp and what it means and um, what they're used to it being used for. So I think that's the first thing that kind of grabs people that it's uh, I suppose a lot of people say I, I play it like a rock guitar or something, you know, and um, don't adhere to that kind of classical element at all. I mainly use the harp. For, um, I write my own songs and um, stylistically. Um, if I'm playing by myself, the harp is both the chords and the rhythm um, and any other little bit of the track that you need to put in. If I have a loop pedal with me, I also use it for, for rhythm and I, I um, use the soundboard as a drum and, and build up some, some rhythm there. And I think that kind of is intriguing to people because I'm basically standing up there belting the crap out of my harp, you know, when people are all, there's just like this idea of the harp being so angelic and you know I just basically ruined that whole image <laughs> in a way My name is Lise Canny and um, the contributing factor most prevalent to the making of me is was, is and will continue to probably be my fearlessness I do know that I come from a family where you're kind of encouraged to be fearless. So I presume it was ingrained in me quite young. Um, both my mother and father are very encouraging and very much like you can do what you want. Mum and dad are um, uh, just brilliant people, really, but uh, very different and very similar in a lot of ways. Um, my father is that typical um, Irish, West of Ireland kind of rogue, you know, like um, he's the life and soul of a party and he has all the, the worst and the best jokes and um, uh, he's a very like warm and funny and, and, and welcoming person. Um, and he has little to no respect for authority at all. And he's always been that person, you know. And I'd meet his friends and they'd be like telling me stories about him, like bringing the, what we call the police as the guards, bringing them on like wild goose chases with like cars that he shouldn't have been driving, you know, and all this. Not that he stole them. <laughs> like back in the day when, you know, he brought his friend's car out for a drive or whatever. And I just hear all these stories of him being a total rogue. And and now, and like when I came into my more adult life, I'd be like, oh, you know, saying like, oh, I got a, a 
parking ticket or whatever and my dad would be like Harrop throw it away put it in the bin don't worry about it do you know what and then my mother would be in the background going don't tell her to do that Tommy whereas my mother then is fearless in a totally different way and she's strong like physically strong <laughs> like she could like you know if you're messing about or like out doing an arm wrestle or anything she's going to beat you every time you know I don't know where she gets from she played sport you know professionally kind of amateurly professionally I suppose when she was younger and she just has that kind of like very very like uh, feisty woman thing about her too so they both they both have that element of fearlessness but in in different ways dad were here in the studio with us today I think they would tell the story of how I gave a fellow four-year-old girl a black eye for teasing me about my red hair as the first example of my fearlessness. I was sent home on my third day of school for giving another girl a black eye. Because she was singing ding-a-ling-a-ling your hair's on fire. <laughs> And what I really remember from the situation, like it was kind of a game. We were running around the classroom. She'd keep saying this to me and I'd like punch her in the tummy, right? And she kept doing it. Like it was never a hard punch or anything, right? Um, And this one time she decided to duck and I got her right in the eye as a four-year-old to another four-year-old. Got her right in the eye and was sent home. And I still kind of like remember standing over my dad and him being like, trying his damnedest not to laugh you know he just thought it was brilliant in so many ways um, and me just looking up being so confused as to like am I in trouble am I being rewarded for this I don't know what's going on but I think that was a clear that was like the first moment that I realised like mum and dad were very different people in a lot of ways dad thought it was brilliant and stick up for yourself and yeah absolutely good woman you know and I can see him do it with my nieces and nephews now his, his grandchildren you know they'd be like don't let him away with that if he kicks you kick him back now you know and and then my, my mother would be like don't no you might hurt him you know so I think that was probably the first thing I remember anyway the first incident I remember where um, yeah the fearlessness kind of came out and um, I was very confused as to whether it was a good or bad thing <laughs> Mrs. Moran's classroom was um, the first classroom on the left as you walked into the school and it was the baby infants and the high infants so it was all them tiny little chairs and tables and um, it always smelt like um, crayons it all smelt like crayons because we used to have these big 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 bowls of crayons at every table and we call them beauties the really the really good looking crayons <laughs> We had like a hierarchy of crayons going on in the classroom and if you had the beauties, you'd nearly, like I remember bringing them home, like stealing crayons at four, like being like, These, this is a good one. Um, yeah, so it always smelled like crayons um, and she always had like, oh, like tuna salad, tuna sandwiches or, or like really, really mayo filled chicken sandwiches or something it always smelled a bit like food as well up close to her her room and it was just covered like in any kind of classroom you would expect it was just covered in colourful little masterpieces um, and uh, there was like a, a um, art area to one side that just had 
paint everywhere and um, tiny, tiny little chairs. I remember getting in trouble because I had my first boyfriend when I was in Baby Infants. Michael Kelly, if you're out there. <laughs> and I kept getting in trouble because the two of us kept swinging on our chairs to kiss each other. <laughs> my mother would be proud. <laughs> the principal at the time was a man called Sean Nestor. And he was mad about music and he has been the impetus for so many musicians coming out of my area. The reason I, I play music at all is that teacher heard me play Tim Whistle um, and gifted me a little banjo. So um, kind of all started in that room. Interesting. I suppose he just saw a little, uh, I don't know, a little bit of musicality in me or whatever. I probably picked up my do re mis a little bit quicker than the next child and he had a banjo at home. And he just brought it in one day and gifted it to me and was like, go learn that and when you buy your own, give it back to me and I'll pass it on to the next child, which he did. And then it was such a success with this one banjo that he bought a fiddle, a violin and concertina and a box and a guitar and he like created this wealth of musicians coming from our tiny little towns. He is very much the reason that I started and uh, I met him a couple of years ago. I've always wanted to write him a letter but I met him a couple of years ago, kind of mid-letter, I'd started writing it um, on, on an uh, island off the west of Ireland. And um, I mean, I was I had somewhat prepared what I wanted to say in a letter, but the second I saw him, I got like overexcited. I went up and I was like, you're the reason I'm playing and la la la, I'm doing this and I'm doing that. And at the time I was just after like signing a, a management deal here and I was working on my first record and I'd sold a thousand seizure out and, you know, it was a very exciting kind of point for me. And I just told him, you know, everything. And he was like, that's great. And that's great. And I was like, and it's all thanks to you. You were the one that did this. And and uh, for a man that was the scariest, the most brilliant, but also the scariest man as you're in your childhood, you know, um, he was very strict and a lot of people were very scared of him. Um, he just broke down. He just started, he just started crying. He was like... He couldn't even talk at first, but his wife was there and she kind of hold, held his hand and he was like, that's literally all a teacher could ever ask to hear is that I've inspired somebody's true path into being. So it was lovely. There were three old gypsies at our hall door. They came brave and boldly one more example of um, my fearlessness kind of benefiting me, I suppose, was much later on when I ended up in ASCAP's annual songwriters retreat in a castle in France for 10 days with 18 of the best of the best in the industry. It was a cry all around the wall. She's over with the rag and tackle gypsy. I actually did consider doing a PhD at one point right after my master's um, but um, that was really the turning point for my career and the reason I'm sitting here today I suppose I went into the man um, that I wanted to supervise my project he had supervised my thesis in my um, MA in ethnomusicology and I adored him I adored his mind I adored his ideas he, uh, Mel Mercier is his name and uh, he worked in University College Cork and uh, 
I said, this is what I want to do. Will you take me on? Will you give me some hours to teach? You know, all of this. And he was like, yeah, I would love to have you. I'd love to have you. But I really don't think you should do this. Um, and I was like, what do you mean? And he said, uh, I've seen you perform. And I think um, you haven't given performance a real goal yet. You've given it half a year here, half a year here. You go back to academia then for half a year. So he goes, why don't you give it one full year? And if you come back here next year into my office, no questions asked. If you still want to do a PhD this time next year, I'll take you on. So I kind of like begrudgingly went away and I just wanted to do the PhD, get it out of the way and be Dr. Caddy by 25, you know. So um, all the right reasons, of course. Um so I went back on tour with the group that I was with, Celtic Crossroads, and did one more tour, and that changed everything. That was the one that changed everything. I was doing a gig in LA, and Miles um, Copeland, the man, man who managed, um, uh, he's Stuart Copeland's brother, so he managed the police, and then he had um, management with, with Sting for a few years as well. He owned CIA Records, which turned into Universal, and uh, he was at the gig, and he like approached me afterwards and was like, baby... <laughs> You need to be a solo artist. You need to forget this band. I can see it in you. You write songs. I was like, I hadn't written a lyric in my life at this point. I was 23. It was all music, music, music. Like, And I was like, no, no, it's not me. It's, it's just not me. Um, and he was like, I can see it in you. You're a storyteller. We can do this. You know, I'm going to take you under my wing. And I don't, you don't necessarily believe all of these things in this first instance obviously but uh, he did he, he flew me to France to his castle he's a castle of course as you do and it was ASCAP's annual songwriters retreat so ASCAP is the American version of PRS here they have um, connections to every single music maker um, and they collect their royalties for them and they have a songwriting, um, songwriting retreat every year and it's hugely prestigious like the most prestigious of all the songwriting camps but of course I had no idea about that I just arrived over with my harp and my banjo and my mad red hair and my West of Ireland accent and my complete naivety and was like great what are we going to do you know and then I mean I was getting going around being introduced to everyone and I, my heart was sinking because I recognised people you know and I was like oh god these are these are big deals I was totally out of my depth like completely out of my depth but again the fearlessness I was like fuck it I'm going for it you know I'm just going to get in there and of course I wasn't invited to any sessions on the first day there was all these sessions happening but that night we all sat down had a food and had a bit of a sing song and this is where I'll come to light because I took out the harp and the banjo and my ear was quick enough to pick up everything they were singing I was playing along with everyone and they were all like oh my God, you're amazing, you know, and come into the session tomorrow and come in here. And basically 10 days later, I was in everybody's sessions. I was working with everybody. I was learning from the absolute best. It was a crash course of masters. And I signed my first publishing deal out of meeting Jodie Marr there. And that was what like catapulted me into my own career. So mad story. And like I came back and I was thinking about the PhD and I was going, this there's something else to this like there must be there's no way I could have got this opportunity it's crazy now that I understand the songwriting world that is the top of the pick of the weeks to be at you know and I had this free ticket on reflection the qualities I think that are most important to your success as a musical artist or to your success in achieving your goals and your dreams 
um, are, first of all, talent, second of all, commitment, and third of all, hard work. I don't know whether which came first, a chicken or egg kind of phenomenon, but I was definitely further encouraged to be fearless by my success in music. It kind of like fueled me with more and more confidence to do whatever I wanted to do. And I could do it if I set my mind to it, I could do it, you know. You know, now and again, I look back on that, especially now that I'm teaching um, students in, IC in ICMP in Kilburn in, in Music Uni. And they're like afraid to get up on stage and they're afraid to like show me their music or they're afraid to really like let themselves go. And I'm reminded, I'm like, wow, I was really lucky not to be held back by any of this, you know probably quite annoying to some people to be around at some points, you know, where I was like, I can do it, give me, give me the mic, I can do this, you know. Um, but I'm so grateful for it and I don't know whether it was genetic and natural or whether it was kind of um, a circumstance of, of me being quite um, successful in music and competitions and stuff. So I don't know which came first, but I know now looking at my mum and dad that they're, they're fearless. So it's probably a little bit of both. If you enjoyed this episode, hit the share button on your podcast app and send it to a friend. If you're a music creative and are interested in featuring on the show, please get in touch with us via our social media channels using the handle at Don't Skip Media at D-O-N-T-S-K-I-P-M-E-D-I-A. Thank you.